If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to open them to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be picking up in verse 32. I'm also going to ask you if you have your bulletin this morning to take that out as well. Those of you that have already flipped back to the sermon notes part, it's not a misprint that the lines are not there. Uh, But take that out because you're going to have a little bit of an assignment in a moment. So you can turn to this page here that has uh, normally where your sermon notes are and there's no lines on that page this morning and we are going to get there. We're going to take a bit of a... uh, whirlwind journey today. I am going to take you on a journey this morning. Uh, I have a large chunk of scripture that we are going to kind of take a flyover this morning. I'm not going to read every word of it. We're not going to get into every word of it, but I am going to take a flyover from Mark chapter 10 verse 32 to Mark chapter 11 uh, verse 32, and we're going to take a broad flyover. There's a geographical journey that takes place in this passage of scripture that I want us to kind of walk on together and then at the end of it there's an important truth that comes out of this journey that I want us to see. There's a passage in this scripture uh, in Mark chapter 11 that is uh, a difficult one that many people struggle with. In fact, John, if you put those verses up there, Mark chapter 11 verses 12 to 14 says this, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. That's an unusual statement, isn't it? Remember that. How often do you hear Jesus was hungry? Not very often in scripture, but Mark tells us that here. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. It's an interesting statement. It's a hard passage. In fact, many people have a lot of trouble with this passage of Scripture. You know, I've been to some restaurants over time that I haven't cared for. Maybe some that I've gone to and I thought were going to be really good, but I walked out and they weren't that great. But I don't think, I can't recall anyways... Ever walking out of a restaurant, even one I didn't like or didn't get that good service at, and cursing the restaurant. (laughs) My wife and I love Mexican food. She's from New Mexico, so she knows good Mexican food. And and, uh, so she loves, you know, she'll walk into a Mexican food restaurant, and, and if it doesn't have a certain smell... Uh, This mix of roasted green chilies and fresh cilantro. And if it has that smell, she's in good shape. This is going to be good. If she walks in and it doesn't smell like that, they're done. I mean, I know. This isn't going to be any good. But we've walked into some and some have been great. And we walked into some, you know, in uh, this part of the country. Sometimes it's hard to find good Mexican food. Sometimes they just melt pepper jack cheese on something and call it Mexican. And, And so that doesn't really work for her. And sometimes we've walked out of some, but I don't ever remember walking out of one after a meal and saying, may no one ever eat tacos from you again. May you never serve another enchilada. But Jesus cursed the fig tree. And when Jesus curses something, it's cursed. I mean, I could curse the Mexican food restaurant and it's probably just going to go on forever and it's not going to matter. But Jesus curses something and it's cursed. 
In fact, a little later in this passage, we're going to see the tree withers up and dies. What's up with that? Jesus curses the fig. What did the fig tree do? Is this some early statement against Earth Day? Or, 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 or well, what is this that Jesus curses the fig tree and it dies? It's, all, it's, it's, a, it's a strange statement. It seems like a harsh statement. It seems out of character for Jesus. But I think it has an important truth for us today. And we're going to get there in a few moments. So hold those questions kind of in your mind for a minute. Because before we get to answering the question about the fig tree, we've got to get to the fig tree. Right now, Jesus and, and the boys are, are ways off from the fig tree, from where we left them off. So we need to get to the fig tree. So take out your bulletin here, and I, we're going to do something this morning. In order to follow the journey, I'm going to have you uh, be a bit of cartographers this morning. You're, you're going to be map makers this morning. Uh, so if you don't have a pen, the ushers have some pens. Lift your hand, and we'll, uh, we probably don't have enough for everybody. But if you, you need a pen, lift your hand. The ushers will give you a pen. And I'm going to give you some instructions on doing a little drawing, on drawing a map um, so that we can kind of see this journey. Because coming to the fig tree and coming to this journey and the journey that is made, I believe, is just as important and is critical to us answering the question about what it means and why Jesus curses the fig tree. And so, I'm going to have you draw a little bit of a map, and then we're going to take the journey on the map. So here's the instructions. You ready? Everybody ready to draw? Okay, so you type A people. It does not have to be perfect. No one's coming to look at this map for directions in the Holy Land. So... Don't worry about scale. Let's just, get the, let's just get the big things right here, okay? So here we go. First, you are going to draw a line from near the bottom left of your page, swooping up to somewhere near the middle top of your page to help you understand what you are drawing. That is the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. So if you can picture Israel in your mind, there's kind of a swooping that goes up from the bottom left to the, to the top middle. And then you can write uh, to the left of that line, that is the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? All right, you got that? Everyone's got the coastline. Now, somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, draw an arrow pointing straight up, and at the top of that arrow, put the letter N. Now you have your orientation. That is north. Now, on the right side of your map, all the way to the eastern side, we're going to put some bodies of water there as well. On the right side, somewhat near the top, draw a little bit of a, a circle, and you're putting the Sea of Galilee. Draw a circle and put the Sea of Galilee. Directly below that circle, near the bottom of the page on the right side, draw kind of an oval oval with the uh, elongated, with the, with the, uh, a, a uh, landscape oval, uh, elongated oval, and that will be the Dead Sea. All right? That will be the Dead Sea. Then draw a line between the Sea of Galilee 
and the Dead Sea, and that is what? Jordan River. Yes, you're following me. Some of you are tracking with me. You can picture it in your head. That is the Jordan River. The Jordan River connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It flows out from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea flows into nothing, which is why it is dead. It just has water flowing into it. Um, now, to the west and north end of the Dead Sea. All right, all right. So, north end of the Dead Sea. You're moving west about a third of the way across the landmass. You're going to put a star. So you're on the same latitude as the Dead Sea, moving west about a third of the way across the landmass. You're putting a star. That's going to be Jerusalem. That's going to be Jerusalem. Now just north of the Sea of Galilee, that's the top one, put a dot. Just north of the Sea of Galilee, put a dot. That's Capernaum. I would drop them back down to the Dead Sea. Just to the north and west of the Dead Sea, to the north and west of the Dead Sea, put a dot. That will be Jericho. The north and west of the Dead Sea, put a dot. That will be Jericho. Now close to Jerusalem, but a little bit east, a little bit east of Jerusalem, put a dot, that will be Bethany. Bethany. Now a little closer to Jerusalem than Bethany, but a little bit to the northeast, put a triangle. That will be the Mount of Olives. And then one final dot you're going to put to the east of the, uh, to the east of the Jordan River and towards the southern end near the Dead Sea, but we don't know exactly where this dot is. So that's why I'm going to give you a little creative license. East of the Jordan River, somewhere in the southern range near the Dead Sea, put another dot. I don't even have a name for that one. But you will see where that event comes in. Maybe your map looks a little bit like this one that I drew. That's the best I could do. Something like that. I've got the Mediterranean, we've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got the Dead Sea, Capernaum up there, this little city to the east that we don't know what it is. Uh, Jericho, Mount of Olives, and Bethany and Jerusalem. So hopefully it looks something like that, but it really doesn't matter if it does or it doesn't. Um, the point is I just want you to follow the journey. I want you to follow the journey with me. Uh, and so the actual map of the land, let's, let's, let's show the actual map of the land there. That's to, so that's the uh, kind of broad view. Let me click to the next slide, zooms in a little bit. And you can see that's the area we're talking about. Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum to the north of the Sea of Galilee. That little number 15 over there, I know you can't, may not be able to tell. If you put that pointer down south, John, yeah, number 15, east of the Jordan. That's that little city that, uh, no, east of the Jordan, John, other side. There we are. 
That's it. That's the little city that we're not quite sure where that one goes, but we know that Jesus was doing ministry there. In fact, Justin Joseph, his sermon last week, that's probably where uh, Jesus gave those, uh, those sayings was right there. Jericho, Jerusalem, all to the west of the Jordan there. Um, so give yourselves a hand if it came out anything like that. Um, you are now certified cartographers of the Holy Land. Um, Let's follow the journey for a minute. Now you're going you're gonna to use your pen and kind of draw some lines. Let me follow the journey. Here's what happens in the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, much of the first part of the book of Mark that we've been going through has been various teachings and places in Jesus' life. But really the end of the book of Mark, and this is unique to Mark, most of it is taken up by one week of Jesus' life. Chapters 11 through 16... Uh, and Mark's only 16 chapters. So chapters 11 through 16 really encompass one week of Jesus' life. That's what we call often the Holy Week between the triumphal entry and Resurrection Sunday. That week, really chapters 11 through 16 are taken up and all of that ministry takes place in the city of Jerusalem. So getting to Jerusalem was significant for Mark and in the life of Jesus. The arrival in Jerusalem, moving around, was no small thing. So it's important that we kind of see the journey that it took place because when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to do some pretty unusual things and, uh, and we need to know why it's so significant that he is in Jerusalem. Uh, so in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, you don't need to go there, uh, but that says Jesus is in Capernaum. He's in Capernaum, so you can kind of put your pen there, and he's in Capernaum, and that's where we started out, chapter 9, verse 33. It's one of the last geographic uh, orientations that were given by Mark. And then in 10.1, we are told that he is in the region across the Jordan near in the... Uh, across the Jordan near Judea. So you can take your pen and you can draw a line from Capernaum, draw it around the western edge of the Sea of Galilee down to wherever you put that dot, which is number 15 on this map, down to there. And then Jesus makes that journey down to there. And that's where he is in chapter 10, verses 1 through 32, the message Justin gave last week. He's in that area giving those teachings there. Then we have these comments from Mark, these words of Jesus. Uh, chapter 10, verses 32, it says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. So it's significant. Mark's telling us, look, this is it. You've been waiting the whole time. This is it. He's going to Jerusalem. That's significant. Jesus is leading the way. That's significant. His face is set. His intention is set. His destination is known. He's heading to Jerusalem where he's already said will be the place that he's going to die and lay down his life. And while those disciples uh, leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those followed were afraid, again he took the 12 aside and told them this and what was going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem. You look at your map and you say, wait a second, he's going south. Why is he going up to Jerusalem? 
because Jerusalem is literally a higher elevation than the surrounding areas. They are literally climbing up to Jerusalem, uh, which is why in Psalms, you will see some Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. You uh, recite them when you are ascending to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus goes on, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus gives the third and final prediction of his death in the book of Mark. And he tells them the most detail. This is what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. Following these comments about his death, for some reason, James and John think it would be a good time to ask him about seats of power. And so James and John literally take this opportunity to ask him about, hey, if we're going to Jerusalem and you're going to be king, we want to sit on your right and left. And we think that is a strange comment, a question to make after this man has just, to, just predicted his death on this city. But it's not so strange because they've been waiting for him to go to Jerusalem. And they know or they believe that when he arrives in Jerusalem, that's the seat of power. He's going to come into his kingdom. We got to work some things out. Who's going to be second in command? Who's going to be third? Who's going to sit on your right and on your left? They've probably been thinking about these things for a long time. Now they're running out of time, so they got to ask him because he's going to Jerusalem. So they ask him. They ask him in a funny way. They say, we want you to do whatever we want for us. Anyone's kids ever tried that? They don't want to tell you what they're going to ask. Would you just do whatever I say? Jesus' response is, is interesting. He just says, what do you want? He says, what do you want me to do? And they said, we want to sit in your right and left. And he says, look, you don't know what you're asking. He said, can you receive the cup and the baptism that I'm going to have, meaning his death? And they said, yes, we can. They didn't even know what they were saying yes to. Jesus said, you know what? You will. You will suffer. But I can't tell you who's going to sit in my right and my left. That's for God alone to give. And so on the way to Jerusalem, his disciples choose this time to ask him about seats of power, and that happens. So we're going to fly over that, and this is on the road. The next city they come to is the city of Jericho. So draw a line from that city you had on the east of the Jordan and draw a line over to Jericho. They cross the river, they come to Jericho, and in Jericho... They meet a man. Uh, we're given his name, or at least his father's name. His name is Bartimaeus, which literally means son of Timaeus. They're coming out of Jericho, and this man, Bartimaeus, he screams out, Son of David, have mercy on me to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. The people with Jesus tell him, hey, quiet down, shut your mouth. Don't bother us. Could have been his disciples that said it. Could have been any of the people that were traveling with them. There probably was a large group of people heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. They told Bartimaeus, quiet down. Jesus calls him to himself. Interesting, he asked the exact same question he asked to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Same exact question, same exact words. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus says, I want to see. Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And he restores his sight and the man begins to follow Jesus. 
interesting account because he's on the way to Jerusalem. This is the last healing miracle that Mark records. And I think it's an interesting one that he chooses to record last because he's going up to Jerusalem to the religious leaders who should have the most sight, but they are blind. And the last recorded miracle of Jesus before getting to Jerusalem is the healing of a blind man. Those that should see are blind and the blind are given sight by Jesus. I don't think it's any small thing to note that. I think it's also important to note that the secret's out. Jesus no longer tells people to be quiet about who he is. Remember in the beginning of Mark, he would heal someone and say, oh, don't tell anybody. And why? Because he didn't want them to get the wrong impression of the kind of king and Messiah he was going to be. But now it's one week away. He's going to die. The secret's out. There's no need to keep it a secret anymore. So he heals Bartimaeus. And he doesn't tell him not to tell anyone. And he does this amazing miracle on the way and the secret's out. What's amazing to me on this journey, though, is how many people get it wrong about Jesus. James and John think he's coming into an earthly kingdom. They're wrong. Even though he just told them about his death. These people quiet down Bartimaeus. They're wrong. Jesus came to heal people like that. So many people get it wrong, but he's on his journey and he's on his way to Jerusalem. They leave Jericho and they come to Bethany. They leave Jericho and they come to Bethany. And as they come into Bethany, he goes uh, and he gives some instructions to his disciples. And he says, go down and get a colt or a donkey and bring it to me. And he gives them some specific instructions and they bring it to him. And then we have what we know as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus gets on this donkey and he rides into the city of Jerusalem. This is significant for Mark because this is the first time Mark records Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It is, it's a big moment. And he records him coming in and people shouts of Hosanna. And he rides in on this donkey like a king would ride in, except he's not a king because a king would be riding in on a war horse. But he's not riding on a war horse. He's riding on a donkey, which would be lost on most people except those that knew Zechariah 9, who it's in his prophecy, he talked about the fact that their king was coming. You got that verse, Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus comes riding on a donkey and he doesn't look like King David riding into Jerusalem. He doesn't look like King Saul riding into Jerusalem because they would have been on war horses. Jesus comes riding on a donkey but it's because of this prophecy in Zechariah that he's the true king coming into the city of Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem. He comes into the temple. He looks around but it's late in the evening. He doesn't do anything. He goes back to Bethany. So draw a line back to Bethany. He goes into Jerusalem and comes out back to Bethany. Spends the night in Bethany. He gets up the next morning and they walk out towards Jerusalem. But on the way, that's where that passage comes in where he sees the fig tree off in the distance and he's hungry. And he goes, but there's no figs. And so he curses it. And his disciples note this and then they continue walking towards Jerusalem. They enter Jerusalem and this is that time that important time in Jesus' life that many of us know when he goes into Jerusalem and he clears the temple. And he finds in this place, he finds a place that's more like a bazaar than a place of worship. 
He sees money being exchanged. And he walks in and he overturns tables. He says this, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Goes on to say, Jesus says, And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The place that Jesus walked into, if you can show that picture of the temple, this is the, this is the temple of Herod or what it might have looked like in Jesus' day. It's huge if you can make out the uh, bottom perspective. That's a football field on the, uh, down here. Uh, and so you can see how many football fields would, would fit. It's a gigantic structure. And so the, you can, outside, inside the walls, but outside the main temple, you can see it says Gentiles Courtyard. That's the place that would have been filled with all the tables, all the money changers, all the animals, all the commerce that was going on. But it was also the only place in the temple where those non-Jews could come and pray and worship. And so it is significant that Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Because he's in the court of the Gentiles and they have turned it into a place of business. And in that court of the Gentiles is where he turns over the tables. Inside the temple, you can see that number 979 where that is. That's the court that women were, Israelite women were allowed to uh, into. And number four, up there a little further, that's where Israelite men would have been allowed into. And then beyond that, only priests into the holy place. And then beyond that, only the high priest once a year into the holy of holies. Jesus walks into this temple and it has become a place of business and he turns over the tables. At that moment, it says that the religious leaders start to plot to kill him and he leaves Jerusalem again, draw a line back to Bethany. He goes back to Bethany and he spends the night in Bethany and then they get up the next morning and they go towards Jerusalem again. When they go towards Jerusalem again, drawing a line back to Jerusalem, they see the fig tree and it's withered and his disciples ask him about it. And they're amazed because this fig tree, Jesus cursed it. It died. Of course it died. When Jesus curses something, it's cursed. And the fig tree was dead. And I want to focus for the last few minutes we have together on this. And that's the temple and the fig tree. The part I want to focus on is this. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? The key to cursing the fig tree is found in the passage that surrounds it, that, that's within it. The fig tree bookends the temple incident. The beginning of the cursing of the fig tree, the actual withering of the fig tree, right in the middle is the cleansing of the temple. And the way that that's structured in writing, what we know is that cleansing of the temple is to inform our understanding of the surrounding text. So why did Jesus curse the fig tree? The fig tree is a visible parable of a truth that Jesus is communicating about the temple. I think that's why Mark goes through all the trouble of telling us that Jesus was hungry. We never know that Jesus is hungry anywhere else. Jesus fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread. What do you mean Jesus is hungry? It's morning. They would have just eaten breakfast. Why are we told Jesus is hungry? Because. He's going to the fig tree to look for refreshment 
He's going to the fig tree to look for sustenance. He's going to the fig tree to look for food that will restore his body. And this fig tree, yes, it is not the season for bearing figs, but it is also not the season for bearing leaves. And this fig tree looks from a distance like it is going to provide sustenance. And it's important that Mark says they saw it from a distance, but then they got closer and they realized there were no figs on it. And I think that is significant that Mark tells us that. The tree from a distance offered the promise of refreshment and sustenance, but upon closer inspection, it was a false promise. The tree could not deliver on its promise. The tree looked beautiful from afar, but that's all it was. When one got close, you could see it for what it was, and that was a false promise. There was a promise of food and sustenance, but there was no payoff. Here's the key. What was true of the tree was true of the temple and was true of Israel. What Jesus was trying to teach us is that what was true of the tree, that it looked good from a distance, that it made promises, was also true of the temple and was also true of Israel at the time. The temple from a distance looked beautiful. It was an amazing sight to behold. By far the largest and most ornate structure that any Israelite would have seen in their lifetime by a long shot. Not only was it architecturally beautiful, it was a symbol of hope for all people. This was the temple of God. This was the place where the Shekinah glory, the, the presence of God dwelt among his people. This was the place where people could come and remember God, come close to God, receive forgiveness, make sacrifices and worship. So imagine with me this now that you know the journey. Imagine with me a pilgrim. Let's call him Benjamin. Uh, put, the map up, put the map up again if you would, John. Imagine with me a pilgrim Benjamin leaves his home in Capernaum because he's going for the Passover feast. And he probably can't afford to go every year like he's supposed to go. He has to plan many years in advance to make this journey. And he's been planning for years in advance and months in advance. And the journey is going to take several, several weeks to make this journey. He's prepared his family. He's prepared. He's raised his lamb that he's going to bring to the priests to be sacrificed. He's been thinking about this journey. And he sets out on his journey for the Passover feast from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. And the squeak of the carts of the wheel that's behind him. And the, and the bleat of the sheep that's being brought for the offering as they keep alive on the on the journey and, 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 the, and the donkeys that maybe they're riding upon and the, and the noise of the crowds of the people and the dust and, and the heat of the day, but they travel and they keep on traveling because this is a journey that they have been looking forward to. And all the while, the patriarch of the family, Benjamin, he's reciting to his family, oh, wait till we get to Jerusalem. You won't believe Jerusalem. And he's talking about it and they're reciting the Psalms. And as they ascend up to Jerusalem, He's reciting the Psalms of Ascent and he's talking about how good God is and he's talking about how beautiful the temple is and how, what it looked like last time he was there and it's been under construction this whole time and it's going to be even more beautiful and they come up over the, over the hills and they start to see this beautiful sight of the temple. Show that picture of the, the temple there finished. The temple, they start to see this beautiful sight in the distance. The sun gleams off it so it looks like it's made of gold. 
I remember when I was in Israel a, a couple years ago and being standing on the Mount of Olives and just you have this perfect view of the city and you can see and it's just you can see it's dominated by this worship space that right now has a, has a Muslim mosque on the Dome of the Rock, that, that gold dome, and that's what you see. But you see all the, the other uh, religious, the, the Christian symbols, the, the Jewish symbols there. And you come over and you just see this beautiful space where the temple was. And Benjamin comes across the rise, and his heart skips a beat, and a huge smile comes across his face. And the journey's been hard, but it's been worth it because they've finally arrived at the temple. They come down the mount and they come in and as they get closer, they hear not the sounds of worship, they hear not the sounds of songs, but there's a strange sound that's coming from the temple and it's loud and it's strange over the bleeding of sheep. They hear the shouts of shop owners. They hear the shouts of people selling sacrifices. They hear the shouts of money exchangers exchanging money for the only currency that the temple would take at exorbitant rates. They hear people that couldn't afford to bring sacrifices along with them being charged exorbitant prices and there's bargaining and haggling back and forth going on in the Gentile courts and there's business being done there that should be only the business of the Lord. And imagine his disappointment. Because from afar off, there was a promise. From far off, it looked beautiful. From far off, it looked like a place of worship. But the closer he got, he realized all it was was a place where people were trying to swindle and steal money and make money off the things of God. And the smile leaves his face and a great sorrow comes upon him. And he gets in line to do his thing and give his money. And he walks away discouraged, disillusioned. So imagine when Jesus walks into this temple, knowing what it's supposed to be, knowing what it's supposed to promise. And he walks in, and there is nothing like that going on. There is no praise. There is no worship. All there is is a promise of something that's not delivered on. And so why does he curse the fig tree? Because it represents something that it was a promise that it couldn't deliver on. And the temple was the same thing in that moment. He's saying this is what the temple's like. From afar off, it promises worship and forgiveness and love and mercy. But when you get close, all it is is death and hollow. From afar off, it looks like there's going to be fruit, but close up, all it is is a farce. And so that's why Jesus curses this fig tree that made the promise of fruit but didn't deliver. Because he was saying, this is what, this is what my people are like right now. They're supposed to be a light to the whole world. They're supposed to be worshiping me, but they've left it. So this is for us this morning. What about you? And what about me? There's no longer a temple we have to go to worship. Jesus changed that in the New Testament. There's a scripture in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, that says this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 
So God's spirit now dwells in you, in the church, and in those who name Jesus Christ as Lord. We are his church, and as individuals, we have God's spirit within us. That's wonderful and beautiful from afar, but what about when someone gets close, man of God? What about when someone gets close to you, woman of God? What do they see? Does it look beautiful from far away? But don't get too close. Don't ask me about my devotional life. Don't ask me about my prayer life. Don't ask me about my scripture reading. Don't ask me about what I, you know, the materialism or, or don't ask me about things I might be putting before God. Don't ask me about, what about when they get close? What about when they get close? See, we as Christians are the temple of God and when people get close to us, they are supposed to experience more of the presence of God. They are supposed to see Jesus even more clearly. They're supposed to be able to come to you. The Bible says you're an ambassador. You're, you're, you're like representing God and Jesus. They're supposed to come to you and find love and find a message of salvation and find peace and find goodness. They're supposed to come to you and find those things. But I'm afraid that too often we look good from afar off but people get close, and the closer they get, is it that we look less like Jesus? Because I think what the message of the temple and the fig tree is, is this, the closer someone gets to you, the more of Jesus they should see. The closer someone gets, the more they know about your life or my life, the more they know about how you live, the more they know about the sacrifices you make, the more they know about how you structure your life, the more they know about what's important to you, the more they know about how you spend your time and how you spend your money, the more they know about that, the more they should see of Jesus. But too often Christians live and get this backwards. We're so concerned about what people see on the outside from a distance that we don't pay enough attention to having the integrity of keeping it all together so that the inside is even better than the outside. So that the closer they get, the more they see of Jesus. But that's supposed to be how our lives are to be lived. And so that's why Jesus, I believe, curses the fig tree because he reminds us that things might look good from a distance, but the point is when they get close, can they deliver on the promise? So we come, and I left communion this morning for the end of this message and the end of the service for this reason because I think it is a time for us to evaluate our hearts and our lives. Coming to that Passover feast it was coming to a place of asking forgiveness. It was coming to a place of asking for our sin to be cleansed. And it's the same when we come to this table. And so maybe you hear this message and you say, you know what, Pastor, the closer people get to me, I'm not sure that they see more of Jesus. Well, this table and this time is to make that right with God. This table and this time is to be able to confess that to God and to say, God, I don't want to just be an outside facade. I want to be 
living for you, and I want the inside to match the outside. And so I'm going to ask those who are going to help me to serve to come forward, uh, and we're going to serve and to come around the Lord's table today. It should be true of our lives individually. It should be true of our church, that this place is a place where people can come to find God. And if you're here this morning, you know, I don't want to miss another part of this message, this passage that we kind of did this broad flyover. Jesus, I believe, still asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? And he is that God. He is that God. He heals. He gives hope. He strengthens. He forgives. What do you want me to do for you? And so if you're here today, you know, let this be a place of hope for you as well as you come to this table. We're going to worship as you're served this morning. Uh, as you're served, you'll have a cup of juice and a piece of bread, the bread representing the body and the juice representing the blood of Jesus. If you just hold them till everyone is served and we'll partake together. If you're a guest with us here, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, even if you made that commitment for the first time a few minutes ago this morning, we invite you to partake with us as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Let's worship the Lord as you serve this morning.